and welcome to the Master's Voice, the podcast series from MediaBrief.com. I'm your host and friend Pavan Archavla and it's great to be back with someone who's in an area of advertising where consumer attitudes, opinions and reactions are carefully collected, analyzed, tallied and then held up to the light. My guest today and his excellent team do that. He's no mind reader but he's close. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Duane Varan, PhD, CEO and founder of Media Science. Dr. Varan was former director of Disney's Media and Advertising Lab, professor at the Audience Lab at Australia's Murdoch University and has been and is a pioneer in the field of market research. Dr. Varan, welcome to the Master's Voice on MediaBrief.com. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Varan, for your time, for being on the episode. Thanks also to Valerie Silverman Kearns of VSK Public Relations who reached out all the way from New York to set this recording up. So thanks Valerie for your patient and professional outreach. You're in great hands, Dr. Varan. So Dr. Varan, thanks for recording with me on Squadcast.fm. Tech is great, isn't it? You're in Australia, in Perth on the West Coast and I'm here in Mumbai, India. And it seems like we are like virtually across the table. That's true. So true. What an age. Right, before we begin, let me quickly tell you about my very distinguished guest on the Master's Voice on MediaBrief.com today. Dr. Duane Varan, PhD CEO and founder of Media Science, was former director of Disney's Media and Advertising Lab, professor at the Audience Lab at Australia's Murdoch University and has been and is a pioneer in the field of market research. A graduate of UT Austin, Dr. Varan's privately held companies are on the cutting edge of tracking persuasion. Media Science, which is at mediasciencelabs.com, a global pioneer in lab-based research integrating neurometrics, facial coding, eye tracking, reaction latency testing, and also advanced methods including AI and machine learning, and Hark, which is Hark Connect actually, it's at harkconnect.com, it's a Qualtech qualitative research streaming and AI platform. Overall, Dr. Varan leads a team of over 50 researchers, project managers, developers, strategists and planners, many holding advanced degrees, working out of offices in New York, Chicago and their headquarters in Austin. So, simply put, they are experts when it comes to better understanding the emotional dimensions of how people react to media, advertising and consumer brands. In the process, Dr. Varan's companies have moved to the forefront of transforming market research into something that goes beyond the stereotypical, the boring online survey. This quest has taken Dr. Varan to dozens of industry conferences and has seen him sit for interviews with everyone from CNBC to The Voice of America. He understands intrinsically that when it comes to measuring consumer reaction, people need objectivity. Dr. Varan is the author of more than 80 peer-reviewed papers on aspects of audience research and neuromarketing. And as both a business leader and a thought leader, Dr. Varan has a compelling story to tell and a roadmap for achievement that I'm convinced the professionals who listen to the master's voice on MediaBeef.com would find both informative and inspirational. So, Duane, once again, welcome uh, to the episode. And uh, what do you plan to do with the legendary or infamous as you view him, 
Al Capone's house that you bought on the south side of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> When we opened our Chicago lab, I began、um, doing background research on the the city of Chicago. I, I fell in love with architecture.、Hmm. You know, the architecture in Chicago is legendary. That the the high rise was born in Chicago,、hmm. and I also fell in love with its history and. You know the the Al Capone story was such an important part of that history, and、mm. the Al Capone house is actually a very important part, you know, of that Chicago narrative. One thing which will surprise you、mm. is in the United States there are only four properties which are not by law allowed to be on the National Historic Register: the White House, the U.S. Capitol building. The Supreme Court building and Al Capone's house in Chicago. <laughs> <Wow> . So there was at one time a huge amount of resistance in the community to this this house. Oh, so I felt it was important to restore it to its original 1931 condition. So I'm working with the Capone family, and and we're we're producing a documentary along the way which tells the story. So it's it's a fun little project on the side. Wonderful. And how about the biographical Broadway musical about Al Capone you're working on? <laughs> Look out, Evita! Here we come. Here comes the mob. Wow, you you know everything, Pavad. I I have no secrets here.、Uh, yes, I am also working on a Broadway musical about、uh, Al Capone.、Um, people don't know this about Capone, but he was actually also a musician. And、mm. when he was in Alcatraz, he actually formed a band, and he wrote he wrote some music as well. So the、uh, the production that we're working on features also original music by Capone,、um, and and it's a fun little story. So that's another little side hobby that I'm that I'm working on on the side. So so the the Capone kind of story has、uh, has taken a little bit of a life of its own. Wonderful, wonderful, great. So, Dwayne, first, give us in layman terms, or what I like to call the idiot's guide, to what you do. Well, I think there are different ways that you could、um, answer that question. One, you could say, you know, what is it that we do、um, in terms of, you know, where our reputation is built in the industry. And、uh, I think one of the things that's unique about us is pretty much every major new innovation in the advertising and media landscape over the past decade、mm-hmm. was first tested at Media Science. So whether you're talking about limited interruption ad breaks, whether you're talking about picture-in-picture ads,、mm-hmm. whether you're talking about video on mobile phones,、mm-hmm. or whether you're talking about branded apps. Um, you know, pretty much every innovation you can think of was first tested by Media Science, and we have、uh, some really amazing skills internally because we have software engineers who can build prototypes for technologies that don't yet exist,、um, and we have really good research designs. I think that tackle those. So that's one way that you can look at the question: is that we we have an expertise and a reputation around testing innovation. And what's the main problem that you've been solving for marketers? Yeah, so the main problem is that、um, people fundamentally lack access to their own emotional journey. So anytime you ask a person a question about how they feel or anything about how they must be experiencing something at an emotional level, what they are telling you is the、um, rational interpretation of what they think they must be feeling. So that's very far removed from what they're actually experiencing. 
And so rather than depend upon what people tell us through surveys or through focus groups, we have we rely on tools that allow us to measure that emotion directly. So whether that is uh, using galvanic skin response, looking at um, how people are reacting, you know, what the intensity of the reaction is to what they hear, whether it's heart rate telling us about the level of attention that people are playing, whether it is tracking muscle movement on the face. Um, you know, people who are born blind at birth display exactly the same expressions as everybody else. So your emotions are hardwired to your face. So we can measure your emotional states by looking at the muscle movement on your face. Um, whether that's EEG in some cases, whether that is tracking your eye movement to see what you're looking at. Uh, and for how long you're looking at things. Um, these are examples of all the types of tools that we use to measure that emotional journey more directly. That's really very interesting. Emotions are hardwired to the face and even people born blind have the same emotions registering on their faces. Excellent. What kind of clients do you have? What's the roster like? Well, pretty much every major US television network group is a client of ours. Um, also, most of the social media platforms uh, have been clients, um, sports leagues, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, brands. Um, so we have a broad uh, repertoire, but where we're particularly known and where I think mm -hmm. we've been, you know, most dominant has really been with uh, television networks. We do a lot of work for the US TV networks. Wow, that's really good. Really good. Very impressive. time for a break i'm your host and friend pavanar chavla on the master's voice on mediabrief.com with me my special guest in this episode is dr duane varan phd ceo and founder of media science dr varan was former director of disney's media and advertising lab professor at the audience lab at australia's murdoch university and has been a pioneer in the field of market research tiny break we'll be back don't go anywhere And we are back. This is your host and friend Pavanar Chavla and with me is Dr. Duane Varan, PhD CEO and founder of Media Science Labs. www.mediasciencelabs.com That's how you get in touch with him to phenomenally empower your business decisions. You know, I uh, also want to ask you to spell it out very simply for all the professionals who are from the broadcast, linear, streaming, other publications, other kinds of media rather, uh, who will be listening to this podcast and who do listen to it and who follow MediaBrief.com. What can they come to you for that they might not get perhaps anywhere else? Some things that will empower their businesses. One really wonderful thing you've written on your website, you've mentioned there and I'm going to start with your conclusion and then ask you how you reached that conclusion. And then you can come on to what uh, Media Science Labs can do for uh, broadcasters and other media owners. So what you've said is that companies should actually ask, what do I need to measure to tell if my communication objectives are effective and are being achieved? So how did you reach that conclusion and that guidance? And what do you do for media broadcasters and media companies? How do you empower them? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. There's a lot in that. Um, you know, to start with, um, 
a brand, any brand, uh, whether that's a mom and pop, you know, uh, shop or whether it's a global brand, every brand has um, some broad objectives, you know, increased sales at the very least. Um, but to achieve those broad objectives, it's using advertising in a very deliberate and a very specific way. And um, it's using advertising with some very specific communication objectives. So I'm, I'm distinguishing here between your overall sales objectives, which are very big, and now the means through which you're trying to get there through advertising, where you have a series of communication objectives. And the good news is that these objectives don't change campaign to campaign. They're generally fairly consistent. You know, a brand, you can't position a brand tactically. Like a brand, you have to occupy real estate in someone's mind. And so it's so hard to do that, that you really need consistency. So it's not like brands change their objectives campaign to campaign. It's like an aircraft carrier, not, not a speedboat. It's not nimble. You know, it's, 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 it's trying to achieve this deeper kind of like communication message. So you would have a series of communication objectives as a brand. And historically, what brands have done is they have relied on common currencies in the market and they've worked backwards from that, you know, from that. So it's like, give me what we can measure and then you kind of fit your objectives to the measurement. That's not how it should be. It should be the other way around. We should have very clearly articulated communication objectives. And then for each communication objective, we should have the best in-class measure on how we can know whether or not we are successfully delivering to that objective. Excellent. That's really wonderful to end. So um, give me one concrete, simply explained example that illustrates the effectiveness and superiority of your unique approach, its usefulness. And if it's a before and after kind of narrative, that would be great. <laughs> well, so a, a company like Mars, um, you know, the candy bar, uh, yeah. I mean, they do more than candy bars, but M&Ms and, you know, I mean, Mars, for example. So many Mars ads, as is the case for many brands, many Mars ads rely on humor. And historically, um, the way that you would get at whether something really was funny or not funny is you might ask people, did you find it funny? Um, you might just go on your gut feel. I thought it was a funny ad. You know, I, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of marketing is done that way. Um, but what we demonstrated to Mars was that a better way of measuring for humor was to use the facial coating. So the zygmatic muscle, which is the edge of your your lips, um, you know, you can measure the movement of that. It's fairly easy to measure with a mm -hmm. webcam. So you can look and see how much movement there is upwards of that particular muscle, and you can translate humor into very, very precise and specific measures. And we know through research that we've done what the threshold is above which an ad is technically funny. And so we can go back to Mars and we can say, you know, this ad that you had is or is not really funny. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to sell more, but if that's one of the objectives, then you want to know whether or not you delivered against that objective. And collectively, as you measure, you're able to understand when you have successful ads, why those ads succeed or fail based on how it's delivering against those core communication objectives. Excellent, excellent, very impressive. And in that same way, you can talk about community, you can talk about best in class measures for 
any objective. And our goal as an industry, really, whoever we are, whatever the brand is, should be rather than measuring generically against common currencies, we should be measuring precisely against our own specific communication objectives. Excellent. And uh, doing now, do you want to just list out the kind of unique services and solutions and support uh, for business enhancement and brand growth that uh, you would provide to anybody in India or from the Asian subcontinent who wants to come to you and say, give us some solutions? Yeah, so of course, we have a wide range of services and divisions. Um, you know, one of the most exciting new divisions that we have is, as you were saying in the intro, Heart Connect, which is our qualitative research platform. Heart Connect is, you know, kind of like Nokia to iPhone in terms of advancing focus group, in-depth interview, you know, qualitative research. Um, it has a lot of built-in AI tools. Um, it has features like, you know, real-time translation, real-time transcription, um, really powerful editing tools. And, and what's most exciting is actually what's on the horizon, because a lot of the work that we've done at Media Science around emotion is actually working its way into the uh, Heart Connect tool sets that we have. Um, so there will be more and more of those. We've currently released in beta, for example, sentiment analysis so that as people talk, their uh, words are getting coded for whether they are positive or negative in tone. Um, so there are a lot of tools like that that are rolling out over time on that on that platform. So uh, at, at the most available end of the spectrum is Heart Connect. Anybody can use Heart Connect. Um, it's a software service that people all over the world can use. So that's very accessible. And that's like a focus research specific analysis of one, if I may use that, correct? Yeah, so you could have something like a video conference, uh, you know, like a Zoom style session where you have a, a group of people that you have a dialogue with, or it could be a one-on-one -on -one interview. But yes, you are getting rich data on how people, you know, experience something and with an opportunity very open-ended for you to kind of like probe and explore with those individuals what's happening. So that's the whole qualitative research arena. You also have uh, like a lab-coated cousin of Siri or Alexa, right? That's Ava. Yes, yeah, so Ava is our AI engine. And um, of course, you know, the, the AI revolution is coming in, in all spheres and we're going to see it more uh, increasingly in, um, in, in the, uh, the qualitative research arena. And what, what Ava is in, in this context is Ava is like an assistant who is sitting next to you in the qualitative session and helping you. Um, she's helping you in a variety of ways. Um, she's transcribing everything that's being said. She's translating uh, into uh, 60 languages. Um, we can actually do that simultaneous as well. So you might have somebody in Germany and somebody in France, and they will be watching in, in their own language. Um, but she's also uh, tagging the content um, you may tell Ava, for example, if anybody says, you know, this word, if anybody says, um, you know, expensive, uh, let's tag that. So just automatically tag anytime anybody says expensive. And anytime it says it, you'll get a little flag that will pop up on your screen that, that, that Ava will generate where they said somebody just said expensive, so pay attention. Um, afterwards, you can go in and there are a lot of really powerful ways that you can edit 
the content of what happened you know normally it takes about six hours for every one hour of a video in a in a qual session and and ava accelerates that to almost real time so at the end of your session you just walk away with all the key extracts so it's it it, it greatly accelerates so and and as i say what's exciting is not just what ava does today what's exciting is all the r d work that we're doing with ava around new features so sentiment analysis is the one that i was telling you is currently in beta but we also are bringing um, biometrics facial coding so a lot of the things that we do at media science are progressively rolling out the challenge that we have and that we're working with is to make all of that friendly so we're trying to work with with our ai engine with ava to make all those you know very sophisticated tools that we use at media science kind of accessible to the layman if you will in the context of heart connect okay right so what i can see is that a big overall advantage is that there's going to be a big leap forward in qual research and also a lot of efficiencies will be boosted here um what about stream pulse that's another very good service that you have yeah so um you know the the bulk of the work that we do at media science is in lab and, and so obviously that's you know we have labs in chicago new york and uh in austin our headquarters there's no reason why we couldn't have a lab in in you know mumbai where you are Pavan. you know we we can have a lab theoretically anywhere but of course that's a much more costly endeavor but recently um over the past two years another uh, advance that we've had has been, as you say, is StreamPulse, which is our in-home research solution. Okay. And we have a variety of platforms for StreamPulse. So we can do, you know, mobile testing, we can do desktop testing. Um, but also now what we have, which is really exciting, is we have our own private Netflix channel. I mean, it's not Netflix, obviously, it's, a, it's an OTT, uh, it's a Netflix style channel, but we operate our own channel for research purposes. Okay. And so we're able to then put test content into that channel. And, and that is actually globally accessible as well. So theoretically, that could be done in India much as much as it's being done in, in, in New York, Chicago, or anywhere in the U.S., as, as is the case. Time for a break. I'm your host and friend, Pavan Chavla on the Master's Voice on MediaBrief.com. With me, my special guest in this episode is Dr. Dwayne Varan, PhD CEO and founder of Media Science. Dr. Varan was former director of Disney's Media and Advertising Lab, professor at the Audience Lab at Australia's Murdoch University, and has been a pioneer in the field of market research. Tiny break. We'll be back. Don't go anywhere. And we are back. This is your host and friend Pavan Chavla, and with me is Dr. Dwayne Varan, PhD CEO and founder of Media Science Labs. www.mediasciencelabs.com That's how you get in touch with him to phenomenally empower your business decisions. So if somebody wants to come to you and say, okay, I have this content that I've planned. Here is a bit of a teaser or whatever about the content. And I want you to get me some very honest assessments, instinctive assessments, emotional assessments and reactions to this. Uh, how does that work? Do you then play it out on your OTT channel and uh, your subjects respond to it and they are measured? Is that how it works? 
Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the case of if we were doing this, uh, let's say we were doing something for MediaBrief.com and it was going to be in Mumbai, um, we would actually work with a partner uh, on the recruiting side. So we would recruit a sample in, in Mumbai through a third party, um, and then we would just make our channel available to those people. And then we would basically set up one of our experiments. We also have in-home biometrics now. So again, you know, it's a cost factor, but theoretically it would be possible to send kit to people in, at home and have them participate and collect biometric data on them as well. Um, but even without that, there's work that we can do. And, and you know, StreamPulse also has a perception analyzer dial style um, uh, tool in it as well, so you can get second by second continuous data about how people are reacting as well. So there are a lot of tools that are available, even in the in-home setting that, that could be done in, in India, much the same as it would be done in the United States. And your mediasciencelabs.com. So what are the labs like? You know, what happens there? The labs are like a trip to Disneyland. The, the labs are the most advanced um, infrastructure in the world, really, for any kind of audience testing. Um, you know, we have uh, neurocubes, which are cubicles, which have been very specifically designed, I mean, over many generations of testing, you know, like it's, 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 uh, it's been optimized. Little things like how the lighting, the lighting has a, a, a light canopy inside the the, uh, the NeuroCube, which perfectly illuminates your face so we don't have shadows, so we get clean measures. There is just so much. The eye trackers sit unobtrusively behind so you don't see them. They're on motorized heads so that the research assistants can remotely drive them. I mean, the, the labs that we operate are the most advanced labs of their kind in the world. And again, we have these in Chicago, Austin, New York. They have EEG, uh, galvanic skin response eye tracking, the facial expression analysis. I mean, all the tools that you can imagine are all there and, and in bulk. I mean, we have over 200 eye tracking stations, for example. So there's a lot of infrastructure there which kind of supports our, the, the core of our business, you know, which is the, the, media science, uh, the, the media science side of what we do. Excellent, excellent. This is really the cutting edge of using neuroscience uh, in, in audience testing, frankly. And in fact, you answered my <laughs> next question, which was, how can the use of neuroscience bring more humanity to brands? And also very important, uh, what potential does it offer when it comes to testing marketing communication and how is it superior? Well, let me elaborate on that. Um, we did do a study, uh, again, the, the study I referred to from Mars earlier, or the, some of the research that I referred to from Mars, we did that in collaboration with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute at the University of South Australia. And what we were able to demonstrate was that survey-based measures were really only slightly better than chance, so in predicting sales and in, in correctly identifying sales. But the neuro measures dramatically improved and significantly improved those measures. So we are talking about um, something that does, you know, very dramatically lift our game as an industry in terms of our capacity to do research in, in a marketing context. Excellent, excellent. Very excited to hear all this and I'm sure all my listeners will be too. So any success with working with brands in India or are you in conversations? Have you actually made any sustained effort to get into the Indian market in terms of awareness? One of the things that will surprise you is that we actually have not had 
a sales force until very, very recently, uh, only until last year, once the pandemic started, did we actually have a sales force. Okay. Um, you know, we started off our first five years, we were the Disney Media Lab. We were not allowed to work with anybody outside Disney. And when we came out of our exclusivity with Disney and we were allowed to have other clients, mm. we, we had a long line, a queue of, uh, of clients who, who wanted to work with us. So we have not really been, been knocking on doors, so to speak. Okay. Uh, it's only really been very recently that we decided to expand and, and, and took on uh, a, a single salesperson, actually. And, and plus, we have another person also on the Heart Connect side. So that's the extent of, of us reaching out, so to speak. So it's mostly been people uh, approaching us, wanting us to do research. And I, I, we haven't really had those kind of conversations with, uh, with brands in India, per se. So I'm sure a lot of people will be making a beeline for you. And I think all they need to do is just visit www.mediasciencelabs.com. So Duane, um, what are the direct applications of neuromarketing research and technology in marketing today? And where do you see AI uh, taking this entire concept? Are you working on uh, new ways to expand the impact of what you're doing? Well, the biggest um, way that AI helps us is actually in building tools. Um, AI has been um, a massive accelerator in terms of building tools. Let me give you an example uh, and, and you'll see what, what I mean. Um, it used to be that it would take us a good five years to develop a tool uh, that would do something simple like, let's say, detect blinking behavior. So one of the things that we analyze is blinking. And we built our own software for doing that. And it was a very cumbersome process because the way that you did it before AI is you had to actually develop these algorithms that look for and identify facial features so that you know that it's a face, then you have to kind of like drill down and, and get the eye, and then you have to kind of like talk about these states of whether the eye is closed or open. I'm very, very, very complex mathematically to develop the, the tools that would do what I've just described for you. So, so it had like a five-year life cycle for us to develop the software to do that. With AI, what we used to do in five years, we can actually do in one month. Wow. So what we do now is we just create a reference library and, and what I mean by that is we have human coders who indicate whether the eyes open or whether the eyes close, whether the eyes open or whether the eyes close. And they just they just code it. That's all. And they might do that for a thousand videos. You know, so that's that's a little bit of work and that's an investment that we make, but nothing like the investment of five years. And that can be done relatively rapidly. Then we have a data set that is a reference library. We then take that reference library and we give it over to the AI engine. And the machine learning basically figures it out. Um, it sits down and it runs and it goes jit, 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 and it does a million different runs of the data and it figures out the pattern. So we don't have to tell it, look for facial features. We don't have to tell, it just looks at, it says here, this was a blink, this was not a blink. And it finds the patterns there around what it was that was a blink or was not a blink. Now, AI is not perfect. Um, in our case, for example, um, our AI library was heavily trained to our lab. 
and um, one of the things that was very unusual is the chairs in the background were also kind of visible so you could see the back of another chair behind you and um, at some point we changed the chairs and we changed the chairs so the back was different suddenly our software our the 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 uh, um, correct prediction of the blinking went way off because the algorithm got broken by a different chair being in the background. So you get very bizarre things that happen with AI, which is why it can be very dangerous as well. So you have to use AI in a very, very, very cautious, but very deliberate way. But if you use it correctly, it's amazing how you can take something that took five years and now develop the tool inside a month. Excellent, excellent. In fact, uh, you've answered a lot of very interesting questions for a lot of your clients like one of them really is you know do interactive ads increase purchase intent what would you say to that well in interactivity is a is a universe so um you know there's so many things that you can do once you say and in fact i think interactive is real is really still on the horizon I don't think that the market has really capitalized on interactivity very effectively to date. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a documentary once that I saw that was about the crossing of the Contiki in the Pacific. And um, it was an interactive video that you could participate in. And there's a scene where somebody falls in the water and there are sharks nearby. And at that moment, a banner pops up that says, would you like to know about sharks? And that tells you that we know nothing about interactivity as an industry. <laughs> that is not the time to put a banner up. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, the way that we understand interactivity today is very functional. Mm. And we don't really understand interactivity with an emotional dimension to it. Uh, mm. Another example I might give is... Um, the interactive movie you know there have been many attempts to create interactive videos like a, an interactive uh, cinema kind of experience and they all fail and they fail because people don't know what they're doing they violate structure like crazy when they start attempting to do that so we do a lot of research trying to understand how to get interactivity right and when you do interactive right you do end up driving up impact dramatically so, for example, one of the models that we talk about that's very successful is what we call a telescopic ad, where you click on an ad and you go to a longer version of the ad. So you might have a funny story and you give a little bit of a tease to the story in the ad. But then for people to experience the story, they have to actually click and go into the full story. And now you, you have an opportunity as a brand to have a five-minute experience instead of a 15-second experience. Um, and we have discovered that that model can actually have incredibly powerful effects in terms of lifting purchase intent, memory, attitude towards the brand, uh, etc. Um, or we've tested um, interactive games. Um, you know, you, you have an ad, you click on the ad and you go into an interactive game. Now, not all of those succeed. Many fail. But they fail because the people who are doing it, again, don't know what they're doing. So it, it highlights, again, the need for research. But we've, we've developed games with clients where, you know, you've doubled purchase intent. So you're talking about very dramatic kinds of results that are possible. Um, again, though, 
all of this is still on the horizon. This is still where we're going as an industry. We're not there yet. Okay. Uh, interactivity is now feasible. Connected TV makes it possible in a TV setting. Certainly it's possible on your phones, on, on desktop, but we really have not used interactivity in, I think, very imaginative ways to date. Time for a break. I'm your host and friend Pavanar Chawla on the Master's Voice on MediaBrief.com. With me, my special guest in this episode is Dr. Duane Varan, PhD CEO and founder of Media Science. Dr. Varan was former director of Disney's Media and Advertising Lab, professor at the Audience Lab at Australia's Murdoch University, and has been a pioneer in the field of market research. Tiny break. We'll be back. Don't go anywhere. And we are back. This is your host and friend Pavanar Chavla, and with me is Dr. Duane Varan, PhD CEO and founder of Media Science Labs. www.mediasciencelabs.com. That's how you get in touch with him to phenomenally empower your business decisions. A lot of sports action is coming up, and one of the important questions that you have answered for some of your clients is. How does advertising on live sports compare to next day replays? Uh, seems to be an obvious answer, of course, live sports, live action. But uh, what nuances would you look at, and you know, what would be your general reaction to something like this? Of all of the different genres that we've tested, um, sports is consistently the best performing. Mm. Um, we look, at, we do a lot of research on how a program impacts an ad. And there are different types of effects. There's not one kind of effect. Mm -hmm. There are many different kinds of what we call context transfer effects, something in the context that transfers onto the ad. And, and again, this is a great example of another area where I think industry has a very simplistic framework. Uh, industry tends to think in terms of congruency. And congruency, I think, is a very limited way of thinking about it. It's not about congruency. It's about many, many other things. And for sports, the way that sports works is that when people watch sports, they become very excited. And they're more excited when it's live versus when it's not live. When it's not live, their level of excitement is significantly lower. But when it's live, their level of excitement is very high. Sure. And that excitement transfers to their perception of a brand. So even though, you know, they should be thinking about it rationally and saying, okay, uh, this is an ad break. You know, I, I don't need to have the same level of excitement. I mean, they can't help themselves. The excitement flows into the ad break and they perceive the brand it with that transfer of that excitement getting, you know, getting captured by the brand. And, and the boost to the brand is actually quite significant and quite substantial. So this is the reason why sports does so well, because people are perceiving the brand in a far more favorable light. You know, in the same way I could turn that around and say, when you're in a bad mood and when you're critical, right? You know, you look at the world much more negatively and you're much more likely to kind of like, you know, give a negative assessment or, and, and conversely, when you're excited, you're far more likely to perceive things in a positive light. So that's the reason. But I do want to have a caution here hmm. because many people think news must be bad then 
because I've just said that you know if you're in a bad mood, then you, you're going to perceive the the you know perceive things in a in a more negative framework. But that's not the case with news. We've done a lot of work with news, and we've demonstrated that news is actually a superior environment for advertising. And the reason is because people watch news in a very alert state, and so they're using their cognitive resources very actively. And so their cognitive resources have been warmed up, and they go into the ad break with faster access to their memory structures. So they're far more likely to remember an ad that they've seen in news than they've seen in other environments. So, you know, again, there are a lot of different ways that programs impact an ad. So I've given you two examples with sports and and with uh, with news. But you know, you could talk about similar kinds of effects for different types of programs in terms of how and why a, a program delivers a benefit to to an advertiser. You have. So many offerings, all interconnected. I'm sure you have the brand integration research from Brand Pulse. You have Stream Pulse for in-home research. You have in-lab custom research that happens. You have Ad Pulse XP, which is creative advertising research, and of course you have Hark Connect, which you spoke about. So, if I were to ask you, what methods of sponsorship produce brand lift? What kind of sponsorship would actually help a brand? actually go up and be you know sort of noticed and would connect emotionally well with the target audiences what how would you help marketers and brand owners decide yeah so that's that's a whole another uh, area within um, you know within media science which is our brand integration research mm. we do a lot of that we do a lot of brand integration research and a lot of sponsorship research Um, and um, you know the, the 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 way that I would respond to that is that um, people used to think of a brand integration with a cinema paradigm, and, and, and what I mean by that is um, you know the movie uh, E.T. Mm. Uh, and I can't remember mm. who was in the 80s maybe uh, E.T. and there was a scene. There were a number of scenes where E.T. would, uh, you know, to get E.T., they would have this trail of Reese's Pieces, which are these, you know, chocolate and peanut butter uh, candies. And um, the sales of Reese's went through the roof with that, you know, with that 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 sponsorship. And um, and that paradigm of the idea that if you're in the movie, you know, if the product is in the movie, it will translate into sales. That's kind of the paradigm that has dominated the brand integration. However, what we've discovered is that far more powerful than the cinema paradigm is the TV paradigm. How's and, that? Um, the TV paradigm is um, you have an adjoining ad, hmm. so you have the integration, but you also then have an ad when the ad break comes. Hmm. And what we've discovered is that the way that an integration works, it delivers value in its own right. Yes. But the far greater value is the way that it changes the way you then perceive the ad. Okay. Um, and and what it does is it dramatically increases the salience of the brand. So you're far more engaged, and you're perceiving the brand in a far more favorable light. So it's a priming effect. It's primed you, and it's made the ad much more receptive. And it's that ad which is delivering. The the highest level of impact around it. So we we do a lot of work helping brands understand how to optimize their integrations to really capitalize on that kind of effect. 
You know, once upon a time, it was very, very simple. A 30-second commercial or a solace ad in a publication, print publication, and that really was that. But today, with so many avenues, vistas, pipelines of Consumer Connect and, you know, media vertical types and what have you, there are multiple options that keep coming in. How does a brand navigate those? How do you help them prioritize and say, okay, this is going to be a decent media mix or multimedia mix? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's overwhelming. I mean, the, the, the job of a marketeer has become infinitely harder than it was a decade ago or two decades ago. It used to be, again, looking back with the lens of history, it used to be kind of simple. You know, you had one proposition. Now, now choice is just infinite and, and perpetual, like it's changing, like every year there are new pro propositions. Um, you know, now there's TikTok. We, we didn't have TikTok before. We weren't thinking about TikTok before. Now, what do we do with TikTok? Like every day there's going to be a new proposition coming into the mix. And, and, and what do you do with it? And, you know, not all of these opportunities are equal. The mistake would be to just follow the fad. The mistake would be just to, to start advertising on Facebook because everybody else is advertising on Facebook without really knowing what it does for your brand. Um, really, we should be much more deliberate. And, you know, even though there are many platforms, we need to understand first our audience and where, where, where our market is. But then when we understand that, which of these propositions provide the best fit for us? What you want ultimately is you want your competitor playing on your turf, not you just playing on any turf that you can. And so you really need to be deliberate. And I think that's one of the opportunities that, you know, one of the things that's unique about us as a company is because we have so much experience in the innovation sphere. It means that when we work with a, a, a client, we're, we're able to help them navigate, if you will, a very complex ecosystem. Um, one of the studies that we've done that we have a lot of fun with is we test um, a whole range of, you know, like 50 different ad models with consumers, but we also test those models with media buyers. And what emerges out of that is a map of where the win-win, lose-lose propositions are. So in these ways, you help prioritize the opportunities. And again, prioritize around different kinds of objectives so that when you know what your objectives are, you know which models kind of like provide the best fit. Are you really looking at, at boosting memory? Are you looking at boosting the experience? Are you just looking at increasing their purchase intent? Like, you know, what, what really are we trying to achieve? And then we can kind of like look at the landscape and find the best opportunities. Excellent, really very interesting. I want to ask you to explain or just walk me through very, very briefly with quick little steps of the media science process that you deploy from strategy to execution and beyond. Well, there's not really one process. Um, I mean, there are many. And again, we have different business units and in some of them, they're very defined. And so people come to us, like, for example, the, the brand integration or sponsorship, you know, mm. we're just testing another uh, sponsorship. But where we have the most fun and what we enjoy the most is listening to a client with a problem. Um, and, and in some cases, it's something that nobody has ever studied. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give you a fun example. Um, ESPN, mm. um, when the 2010 World Cup happened, mm. they wanted to know about 3D. 
you know, so 3D was new. It hadn't happened. In fact, we couldn't even get TV sets till like a week before the World Cup. Like it was, it was very hard for us to study because we didn't even have the technology yet. And ESPN was going to invest very heavily in this technology. And they had a lot of questions about what effect, you know, is an ad more effective if it's in 3D? Is the program more effective? Are there health risks? You know, um, nobody, you know, I mean, people say there isn't, but ESPN better be sure. Hmm. So in the one month period of the World Cup, we did over 3,000 hours of testing. Wow. Um, we had people come in every day for five days. We had people watch three games back to back. So that's like almost nine hours of, of viewing. Um, we gave people eye exams before they did the study and we gave them after the study so that we could could calculate their stereopsis, which is their depth perception, to mm -hmm. see if their depth perception had been harmed. Um, the work that we did in that one month was actually greater than all of the research that had been done to date globally in wow. 3D TV in the marketing sphere up until that point in time. So we did this huge body of research and that research really helped inform ESPN in terms of its position around you know how it wanted to approach the uh, the deployment of, of of 3d it's just an example but but it highlights again that and and there were a lot of challenges for us even technically testing it was hard we needed a dedicated feed so espn provided us with a direct fiber feed and we had all this equipment that was set up in our labs to make the 3d happen and we were working with the espn engineers and as soon as we had this this lineup of all this equipment, we had a test transmission game and we watched the game and there was a, a, a buzz in our sound feed and we were like, what is wrong? And we were working half a day with all these engineers trying to find the buzz and mm. it turned out it was the Vuvuzela. None of us knew about the Vuvuzela. <laughs> but, but we're very good as a company and if we don't have the tools, we will go read the literature, we'll go look for the best in class way in the world of doing it, and we'll acquire or we'll collaborate with people who do have that expertise. So we love as a company tackling new arenas and answering questions that haven't been answered before. It's the favorite part of, of, of what we do. And sometimes that means that we have to build our own tools. So we have software engineers who help us build those tools. Um, we're a very um, bold team. Um, our team never questions that we can do something. And in, in our history, there's never been a question or a challenge that we've been presented with that we haven't been able to, to build a solution for. Excellent, excellent. Which was the most difficult challenge according to you that comes to mind? Um, 3D was one of the biggest challenges we had faced. It was just technically, you know, it was a completely new universe. And we had like a week from the technology arriving in the US to figuring out how to kind of like master it. So it wasn't just making the technology work, it was making it work in a research context, you know, being able to manipulate the feed, uh, being able to measure people, you know, again, looking at stereopsis required us to very rapidly develop uh, skills, you know, uh, that we didn't have before. Um, so, so it, it's an example of what was a huge challenge for us. That's why we were so proud of the work that we did over that 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 month. So you are actually illuminating the media journey through science, innovation, and integrity. And it's the integrity that starts your process 
and also the integrity of the kind of insights that come out of the entire science and innovation and the process which actually is like it closes the loop so tell us about your your most important let's say whether they are values or whether they are you know principles that you work according to one of the things that's unique about us as a company is that since its inception i made a commitment to put all of our profit back into the company okay uh, in fact for our first 10 years as a company i didn't even take a salary uh, I, i i was working still as an academic and i i had a, a good salary as an academic um and so uh, i didn't take a salary out of media science but even beyond that all of the profit that we make as a company gets reinvested back in the company now Excellent. i cannot tell you pavan what a difference that decision makes to the culture of a company because if you are not about profit because the profit is about enabling us to do better research hmm. then what you become about is about um the research okay. uh, not about the profit about the research so for us integrity is easy and it's easy because we're not motivated by money we're motivated by doing better and better research i mean we're not a non-profit you know our our research is expensive you know we we are a a premium research provider in the market but the difference is that because our profit gets plowed back into the company it means that we can do what we do with the highest level of integrity that means that if we have bad news we have no fear in sharing the bad news with a client right. uh, it means that we can publish articles that are self critical i don't know any research vendors in our space that that publish articles that are self critical um we can be very honest uh, about it we always hold the interest of our client mm-hmm. above our interest and mm-hmm. and it's easy to do in that sense when you're you're not motivated by profit but you're motivated by by the research itself wonderful so i think that that one decision that we made has really made a big difference to our culture and that's the reason why you know integrity is so core to the values of who we are uh because uh because it's fundamental to who we want to be in the industry wow so how familiar are you with the indian media and marketing industry i mean have you been to india ever have you traveled not familiar at all but i will tell you that i love indian music and i love indian movies and we love uh watching bollywood dancing i mean oh my god it's it's the best but no i i'm not familiar with the media sector um in india uh, at all thanks very much duane for all the time for all the wonderful insights and um, i'll be very happy i'm sure to be able to take this content to every media person every media professional business owner marketer ultimately all of us are in the square in the marketplace to create engagements that empower businesses and i think you bring phenomenal value to the whole space of actually you know measuring audiences reactions looking at strategies giving insights using neurometrics artificial intelligence and cutting the process bringing in so much of efficiency and such enormous value with specific answers to specific asks uh, whether they range across what kind of brand sponsorship should i have do live or other sports replays offer better returns which entertainment is making the biggest impact on your program is my ad campaign more effective on ott or linear how does advertising on live sports compare i mean really really very good thank you very much indeed duane you covered such great ground pavan 
you did a great job. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a fun conversation. I'm sure everybody's going to be, you know, on the edge of their seats waiting for the next episode <laughs> in MediaBrief.com. Um, you know, this, this master's voice thing was just, uh, just tons of fun. Thank you so very much, Duane. Thank you for your time. Dr. Duane Varan, PhD CEO and founder of Media Science, does such phenomenal work and was my expert guest on this very special episode of the Master's Voice on MediaBrief.com. I hope you enjoyed the insights from his conversation. I definitely did. Till we meet again with yet another expert for another expert conversation on the Master's Voice. This is your host and friend Pavanar Chavla from MediaBrief.com saying take care, stay safe, bye-bye.